Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9 and the host for this podcast. Today, we're talking about a crisis in Seattle in many cities across the country, fentanyl. Journalist Andrew Engelson moderates the talk with a panel of advocates for public health and safety. Brad Feingood of Public Health for Seattle and King County, Darcy Jaffe, Senior Vice President of Safety and Quality for Washington State Hospital Association, and Julian Saucier, who works to support organizations and coalitions impacted by the criminal justice system. The discussion took place in early May for the Crosscut Ideas Festival. The panel unpacks why and how fentanyl is so powerful, how America's war on drugs was a failure, and three key areas policymakers and the government should be focused on to end this rapidly growing public health issue. The trio challenges listeners to think differently than what they may have been taught. The issue we're seeing here is often framed as a morality issue, but these experts say it's actually a health crisis. I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Crosscut Festival. Uh, my name is Andrew Engelson, and I'm a freelance journalist here in Seattle. And I've written on a variety of topics uh, from LGBTQ issues to the environment uh, for publications, including Crosscut, uh, Investigate West, The Seattle Times, The Stranger and the Urbanist. Um, I've reported on drug policy and the fentanyl crisis uh, for local, the uh, local online news site, Publicola. And that's why I'm here today leading this discussion. Uh, thanks for joining us. We've all come here to talk together about uh, a terrible, rapidly growing uh, fatal overdose crisis here in Seattle and King County and the nation. Uh, last year in King County, uh, 1,000 people died of overdose, uh, and more than 700 of those uh, were due to fentanyl, a cheap, readily available, and powerful opioid. Uh, these fatality rates have been growing exponentially uh, since before the COVID uh, pandemic and they show no signs of abating. So thank you all for coming. Um, I'm here today with Brad Feingood, who leads overdose prevention efforts for public health, Seattle and King County. Uh, his role, uh, uh, he uh, co-chaired the county's heroin and prescription opi opioid task force. Uh, he has a master's in community agency counseling uh, with uh, a specialty in substance abuse from Western Michigan University. Uh, he has 20, over 25 years of experience in the drug and alcohol field, and it's worth noting that he is the survivor of a brother who died of a drug overdose. Uh, Darcy Jaffe is the Senior Vice President for Safety and Quality uh, at the Washington State uh, Hospital Association. She is the past Chief Nursing Officer and Senior Associate Administrator at Harborview Medical Center and the Co-Director of the UW Medical Center for Scholarship in Patient Care Safety and Quality. Uh, Darcy is a board certified uh, uh, by the American Nurses Credentialing Center and both as a psychiatric mental health clinical nurse specialist, sorry, and nurse executive. Uh, Julian Saucier uh, works to support organizations uh, and coalitions that affect people impacted by the criminal justice system. And he aims to reduce uh, the pipeline to prison, improve conditions for those incarcerated, and reduce barriers for those returning home. Uh, he served on the Washington State 
Substance Use Recovery Services Advisory Committee, SURSAC, um, as a person in recovery from substance abuse disorder, and also someone who was incarcerated by the criminal justice system. Uh, he's worked as a certified peer recovery specialist and support service manager uh, at RI International of Washington State, which is a nonprofit mental health crisis uh, services firm empowering uh, individuals in recovery. So thanks for coming. Um, it's easy to forget about those, that these 1,000 uh, data points, these statistics, um, each one was a human life lost. And I wanted to just uh, say, uh, personally, uh, a close friend of a friend of mine uh, was one of those statistics uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, she was a vibrant individual. She was a good parent. Um, she'd been in recovery from both opioid uh, and alcohol use for several years. Uh, but then one of her children was injured in an accident, and she was prescribed Vicodin, um, uh, an opioid pain reliever. And after taking some of her children's uh, medications, uh, she returned to drug use. Uh, and one day, uh, uh, chose to use uh, both cocaine and fentanyl and did not survive. And so I'm hoping that this panel um, will help us honor her memory uh, and let us think about ways to prevent those deaths. And so I want to start uh, maybe uh, with Brad. Um, what is it uh, about fentanyl that is so different from other opioids, and, and how is it contributing to this current crisis? Yeah, thanks, Andy, and uh, my condolences. Thank you. It's hard, it's hard to start. Um, I mean, uh, I come from a very deeply emotional place, uh, as we all do, but um, having lost a loved one, and as you said, every single one of those 1,000 people that died just last year was is connected to somebody like you're talking about um uh so and i think thank you everybody for for being here today to uh be part of this conversation especially when we we're up against michael cohen that's like <laughs> <laughs> so my applause to you hopefully thank you um so why fentanyl is such a significant issue so in short, um, and I know my colleagues are thinking that I don't do anything in short, so I will try to be short. Um, fentanyl is a super, super powerful, highly, uh, highly addictive synthetic opioid. So what does that mean? So we have other opioids, right? We have prescription narcotics, we have heroin, we have fentanyl. It's just some of the opioids that are out on the market. Uh, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, so it takes no agricultural process to make it. So heroin, which was a significant um, impactor in overdose deaths in our community for a long time, has a whole agricultural process to it. It needs to be synthesized and made into, um, made into, made into heroin that ends up getting brought in. It smells, it's here, it's sticky, it's all sorts of different stuff. Fentanyl, in the way that it's coming into our community, <clears throat> is mass produced um, with just a couple of chemicals. There's no agricultural process. It's super duper cheap to make. And uh, folks who are making it can make a lot of it at once. And there's, so there's no like seasonal process to it. Sent up north of the border. And it's very easy to change what it looks like and how it comes into our community. So we saw fentanyl come in the form of these counterfeit pills, and now it's coming in the form of white powder that's made to look like cocaine. It's extremely powerful, as I said, and has a super short half-life to it. 
So where people maybe needed to use heroin, you know, four times a day, people often need to use fentanyl more often, not to get high, but with opioids, it's not to get sick. It's not to go through the ups and downs. It's not to experience the withdrawals. And so people use in order to survive literally. And the more that people use, the more that the addiction sets in, the more that withdrawal happens, all that type of stuff. So that's just a little bit about fentanyl, Andy, and um, how it's came into our community. Oh, I should say, as an opioid, it's a super duper powerful pain reliever. So whether it is a physical pain or an emotional pain, it's a downer, it's, it sedates, it's, you know, and so it helps take some of that pain away from people. And we see fentanyl coming into our community and impacting communities that are very marginalized, that experience a lot of pain on a daily basis. It's super easy to get, it's super cheap, it's super highly potent. Thanks, Brad. And to Julian, um, as someone who's uh, experienced substance use disorder personally and incarceration, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about, I mean, so much of this crisis um, has to do with stigma. And, uh, you know, it's, people have stigma going into treatment. Um, they're treated that way in the media. What, what, is, what is the, uh, how, is, how strong is that stigma? stigma? And, and what was your experience with uh, substance use and incarceration? And yeah, yeah. Um, I, was you know a drug user, um, and there's a, there's a lot of shame and stigma that goes along with that. With your family and stuff like my family is a great family, um, no no problems, no issues, no drug use or anything like that. Um, in fact, my brother was a Seattle policeman. He was a policeman guild president um, until he uh, passed away in an auto accident. Um, and I think a lot of people get isolated and stay themselves. Um, drug addiction is often a very um, siloed thing, and you usually find only your, only people you're connecting with are people that are also using, um, and that's a cycle that kind of keeps to itself. And you distance yourself from people that are um, like you know, like family and stuff, so, that, so you're not judged. Um, like there's a lot of different kinds of stigma and um, shame issues that and issues that people um, find relief from these drugs, find a way to escape um, things for, for a weekend. I also believe that um, like a lot of people, there's a lot of people that, don't ha that, 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 you, that um, get addicted to drugs that have underlying issues that, need, that are not you know, addressed. And I think there's a lot of people that can use drugs and not have those impacts. And in fact, most people don't have an impact that's um, will lead to incarceration or to a, to a problem. Yeah, I think so much of the issue is focused on this dis disorder, but there are also folks who are, you know, you know that it's not necessarily that, that's not the case. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Um, so Darcy, uh, the, the nation's had a, a war on drugs for a long time. And, um, uh, well, we can, I'll ask you if you think it's a success or not, but we've treated substance abuse as a criminal justice problem. Uh, rather than a public health problem. And I'm, I wonder if you could talk about your, how that's changing, particularly how your organization is dealing with things a little bit differently now. Yeah, thank you. Well, as we know, the war on drug that was started by, officially started by Nixon in the 70s was um, and is like many uh, wars the United States decides to go into with reasons that are not um, what they say they are. Um, only a success if you think the war on drugs should have um, resulted in 
a lot of uh, organized crime violence and um, the United States being fifth in the world population in 20, you know, in 20th percent of our population is in jail. Um, we know um, that the war on drugs was not a public health effort. And to be honest, though, back then, um, in the healthcare community wasn't saying, hey, we want, hello, uh, you know, this isn't right. We weren't doing a very good job, and a lot of, we're not doing that great a job right now. But um, what we do know is that criminalizing a health condition doesn't make any sense, right? We need to have compassion. On the other hand, I also understand there's a dialectic. You can have compassion for someone and still be really mad at them because they just robbed you, right? And so there's a lot of layers. What we're really looking at, though, from the um, healthcare community, uh, um, and Brad knows this because we've worked on this, prevention, education, and treatment. And prevention in two layers, preventing the addiction in the first place. So a lot, in Washington in particular, has done a pretty good job of helping the prescribing physicians know what their own prescribing habits are, and if they're out of whack with what um, other prescribers are doing, then they can learn more about it. Um, the, you know, prescribing opioids for pain is generally um, not, a, not the standard anymore, it's a first standard, so we're doing a lot of education on that, but it's really complicated, and, we, and people don't want to be in pain either, right? right? So you, you, there's a balance there. Um, we're looking at um, how can we um, make sure that for um, prevention of overdose that there's Narcan available. And there was a law passed a couple years ago that says that um, ERs and psych hospitals need to make sure that people that come in with um, a condition that makes it look like they might be at risk of future overdose, to, they need a prescription of Narcan. Seems pretty straightforward, it's actually really hard. And so the hospitals are working on that, they have a lot of work to do in that. Um, we're doing a lot of education of the youth. Um, and we know, you would think, and we were having this conversation earlier, you would think that there'd be no way that anybody would not know that fentanyl is very dangerous. Right, right. But in fact, a lot of our kids don't actually know that. And we have a lot more work to do in that regard. Yeah, and it's a, it's a lower barrier one, right? Because you know, with other opioids, you know, you had you know you had to use injection, and this is you know easier whether it's a pill or smoking. Yeah, the and interesting so thing about fentanyl is that you know, with uh, a lot of um, there's a good portion of people that get addicted either because they were prescribed opioids in the first place, or they used opioids as as you you know described with your friend, someone else's opioids, and get addicted. So we really are working on making sure that when you're done with your opioids, there's a place to get rid of them safely. Right, and that's a great uh, segue to my next yeah. question, to Brad, actually. Um, you know, for years, um, Seattle's been hoping to get a, um, a sanctioned safe consumption site, like in Vancouver and other places in the world, um, and we haven't had that. It's been delayed. And, but uh, interviewing you for some stories, I noticed that Public Health Seattle, King County, is doing some really innovative work uh, in terms of uh, educating and empowering drug users. Um, what are some of the most effective um, programs you've seen at Public Health? Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, there are really effective treatment medications and interventions for people who are using substances, right? Um, and especially opioids. There's a couple of medications uh, that we have access to, methadone and buprenorphine are the two uh, primary medications that are really effective treatment medications, right? And then another medication called naloxone comes in the brand name of Narcan. 
uh, as my colleagues were talking about. And so what we're trying to do is lower barriers to get people access to those. So we are doing this, so due to some federal regulation change, uh, now people can use teleprescribing to get access to buprenorphine. So we're standing up a 24 seven uh, phone line where somebody can just call and get access to buprenorphine. We're making naloxone as available around the county as possible. We just um, cited a couple of naloxone vending machines so people can walk in um, and get access to um, to naloxone without any barriers. And then we're trying to do things like uh, develop alternative places to take people who have experience in overdose because Right now, um, and there's a lot going on um, statewide as far as, uh, um, it's, it's called the Blake Bill, which is uh, the only bill left in um, the legislature that they're trying to figure out. One of the things that we know is that we need to give people alternative places to go because if the only option is hospital and jail, well, people don't want to go to either of those. And so we're trying to develop alternative placements and alternative uh, locations for people to go in a low barrier way that's going to treat them human and give, give people the, um, the dignity that, that they need. Because we know that when people can connect to care and connect to other people, um, that they'll succeed. Um, you know, as part of your question, you talked about <clears throat> supervised consumption or supervised use spaces. And the same thing holds true with fentanyl as does with heroin as with other types of prescription drugs. If um, uh, overdose does not have to be fatal. As you mentioned um, when you introduced me, my brother died of a drug overdose. And the night that he died of a drug overdose, there was someone with him there who was also using drugs. And if that person knew what an overdose looked like, had had naloxone on them, then my brother very well could be alive today and sitting in the audience or you know, maybe my fate would have been different. So we're doing a lot to try to educate people and, and including people who use substances on what they can do to empower themselves because um, people can take steps, right? Like naloxone is now, uh, well, it's gonna be over the counter. So I implore every single one of you to have naloxone. I have naloxone in my cabinet. I, I implore you all to have conversations with people because, you know, as Darcy and Julian were talking about, if we don't start to do better upfront with prevention, then we're gonna be, the, the, the deep end of the trough keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Last year we had 1,000 people die, as you said, 700 from fentanyl. Just a couple of years ago in 2015, we only had three people in this community die of fentanyl-related overdose. That's a huge increase. Today in King County, on average, we'll have three people die here today in the county while we're sitting here talking of drug overdose. And so we have to do better about getting to people and about serving people in a way that they're willing to receive services. Because even if people, not everybody wants treatment, uh, but there's other things that we can do to help and empower people so that they don't um, have to suffer a bad fate. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher-paying jobs. 
Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. So Julian, um, uh, as you know, and as you mentioned, Brad, uh, the state has been grappling with its drug possession law in 2021. There was a Blake ruling, Supreme Court ruling that threw out the state's uh, drug possession law. And the, the legislature has been debating it uh, this year and uh, they didn't come up with a bill and they're going to a special session uh, later this month. Um, and that debate has been going on between whether to come at it with a public health approach or a more sort of coercive treatment slash uh, punitive approach. And I'm wondering, um, you know, with your experience uh, with the, the, the incarceration system, is, is, is you hear a lot of talk, people are saying that, you know, jail is a way to get people into treatment. Is jail and prison um, a way to get people into treatment, an effective way, and what's, the, what's a better alternative to that? Yeah, I, I personally am a, uh, would go towards a decrim you know, so just be upfront, decriminalization of simple possession of drugs. Um, I do believe that um, sending someone to, to jail and that whole experience, even just the experience of getting arrested, is pretty traumatic. And people are not, people who are, um, some people who are used substances have underlying issues. And if you're adding more trauma on top of trauma, you're not, you're making these people, making people have a harder time. Um, sadly, sometimes they put people in jail for like, even like 30 days, and their tolerance goes down, they go out, they use, and then they, they overdose. Um, you, just the idea of it, of it being um, such, a, such a stigma um, is the whole idea of incarceration, like going to jail, like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's bad, and that's, that's where you get people isolating instead of seeking help or talking, talking to their own physicians, talking to other people for help, you get people, um, uh, I, I really I would I wouldn't recommend um, the legal system for for help for helping people that have substance use disorder. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Andy, can I add yeah. an adage real quick? Yeah, I know we're out. I'm taking it out of turn a little bit, but <laughs> uh, just a little story to sort of uh, exemplify Julian's point a little bit. When I used to do direct service and I worked in prisons and jails and stuff like that. I was working with a guy out in the community and he, um, he was somebody who used a lot of alcohol and he drank a lot and he struggled with alcoholism. And um, he was being sanctioned by the court, right? And so um, he came in on a Friday and we were talking and he said, yeah, I'm, you know, I drank and I shouldn't have drank. And he's like, I gotta go to jail this week. And I was like, okay, well, let's make this a, therapeutic jail experience and you go let, let's let's go in with the intentionality and mindset of learning something and being reflective and all that type of stuff and I and so he came back on Monday after he got out of jail and I was like so how was it right like was it amazing uh no but did you I was like did you have that like therapeutic mindset I was like did you learn anything and he's like yeah he's like I learned how to make meth <laughs> right? And so you take folks who are struggling and in a bad situation and you put them next to people and around people who also are struggling and have a bad situation. That's not a therapeutic environment, right? And that situation for me just continues to ring in my mind of how powerful that of an adage was of like the impacts of incarceration, yeah. just one impact of incarceration. Yeah, it's always surprising to me that legislators, you know, recommend that, that as if prison would be, you know, the solution um, when we know that, you know, treatment and services are really, 
with that. Um, so Darcy, um, I know we've talked mostly here about Seattle and King County, um, but as you know, in the nation, across the nation, um, rural communities are also facing uh, this, this crisis. Um, and it's changing the way um, people in those communities are, are viewing, um, you know, whether it should be a, a, a criminal justice approach or a public health approach. I wonder what sorts of, you know, what's happening in rural communities um, that you're hearing from, from your members and what are the kinds of solutions that are unique to those areas that'll help this crisis? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and we and we do hear a lot about Seattle and King County, and there are lots of people here that are overdosing and addicted, um, and the reality is is the overdose rates are actually higher in the counties that are on the west coast. Many of the counties in our rural areas in eastern Washington and, and southeastern Washington are um, spectacularly higher than they are here. Um, there are some unique challenges in our rural areas, uh, number one being that even though resources are hard here, they're almost non-existent in most rural counties. Um, if you do get, uh, say you go to a doc and you get Suboxone, you might go to a pharmacist and speaking to what Julian was talking about, stigma, and you know the pharmacist. And so they may not want to get, have the whole community know, right, that they're being treated and that they're on Medicaid. So we have that extra stigma there. Um, we have, or the, um, you know, telehealth is great and it's an amazing addition and it has been helpful in some of the rural areas. But again, um, some of our rural areas don't have broadband. Um, not everybody has a smartphone. And I think that um, we are doing some hub and spoke models that have been helpful. Um, we're doing some... Um, Explain what that is. What's a hub-and-spoke yeah. model? So I think a hub-and-spoke model is great, and this is where like King County and some of the more, high, more highly... And we did this when I was at Harborview, um, where we have, um, we have this sort of like big uh, hub with lots of comprehensive services, and it spokes out to different areas geographically so that we can work together more collaboratively and get the resources out there. That's, I think that's something that we need to continue to work with. Um, the other thing that, um, as I talked about earlier, uh, I was um, that the kids don't seem to really understand the dangers of fentanyl in particular. They don't understand that there's a very small window between what it takes to get you high and what it takes to kill you. And, and as Brad said, fentanyl is in everything now. And there's, we have seen what, um, what I've, I've heard from some of my colleagues in the rural parts, and I'm sure this happens here, that uh, you know, weekend parties the kids have, and they're using, they think they're using recreational drugs, um, and they don't realize that what they're using is fentanyl. Um, so it's a lot harder, it doesn't get the press. And as you said, a lot of rural areas tend to be a little more conservative in their thinking, a little more law enforcement forward, um, and, and it's, hard to, for it's hard to get past the morality of the addiction as opposed to this being a health condition. Right, and that's yeah, that's a, a tricky thing, right? I mean, uh, a lot of times, the the homeless crisis gets conflated with the, the the drug crisis. And Brad, I wanted to pose a question to you about you know this the, the relationship between the unsheltered population and and fentanyl users. Um, and I know you, you know you're, that's a big concern for you, um, but it's just not this simple case of cause and effect. And I'm wondering what are some of the unique needs of, of those populations, and and how are you serving them? Yeah, I mean, I, I would really be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about the disparities that we've seen, especially recently, and the 
um, exacerbated disparities that fentanyl has caused. So in King County and uh, here in this larger county in 2022, so last year, we saw a nine times higher rate of overdose deaths when it's age adjusted for uh, people who are American Indian Alaska natives than white individuals. Uh, black individuals had approximately uh, a three times higher likelihood rate um, when, when it's age adjusted of overdose deaths than white individuals. Latinx and Hispanic friends, they also have a higher rate of overdose. So what we're seeing, and, people, and as you mentioned, people who are living unsheltered or who are in some type of uh, supported housing or through in that um, system have a much higher likelihood of overdose. And, and so the question is why? Right, and I think that a lot of the answer is rooted um, in trauma. You know, as uh, as Julian talked about, um, we've seen a war a, a war on drugs. Uh, traditionally, has really just been a war on people who use drugs, and has disproportionately impacted communities of color because of the way that policing has happened. Right, and so you know, when I used to work in prisons and I would walk in the room and out of 15 people, I would, I'm the only light-skinned person in the room, you know something's wrong. And I'm the only one leaving that day, right? And everybody, so all those people are taken up out of their communities. And so the way that disparities have happened due to uh, intergenerational trauma that's happened and trauma to communities have exacerbated then the out, the, the, the incomes, or I'm sorry, the outputs um, and the outcomes uh, when we all throw other societal issues like, like people living outside and people not having houses and disparity of wealth and stuff like that. Uh, before I stop, I'm going to say one more thing real quick, which is um, you had mentioned around experimentation and primary prevention. And it is really true, the fact that, you know, heroin was on the other side of the needle, right? As far as literally, like, people don't, you know, like, uh, the threshold of experimentation, where that needle is the threshold, that was a really safety measure for a lot of people. They're like, I'm going to experiment with drugs, but I'll never use a needle. Like, I remember when I was in college and there were people using a lot of drugs, but they're like, I'd never use a needle. And so all of the drugs on the experimentation side that didn't take a needle didn't really have a huge lethality risk. Now that the needle is pulled out of it and most people are using fentanyl by either swallowing it, ingesting it, snorting it, or smoking it, it's, it, it, it's much easier to, um, to have a bad outcome early on in the experimentation phase. You don't need a significant substance use disorder or addiction to have a bad outcome. And in fact, if your tolerance is lower, you're taking a super high powered uh, opioid, your risk of overdose uh, goes up earlier on. Thanks for that. Um, I'm gonna go to one of the um audience questions, and it's kind of part of a question I was going to ask you as well, Julian, um, uh, which is that um, uh, someone's saying that uh, Canada has, I don't think this is quite, the, quite true, but it says that Canada has legalized cocaine and heroin. Is that the goal for Washington? I know that there are a lot of decriminalization efforts in, in Canada. Uh, Vancouver's done a lot of work on this. And, and what I wanted to ask you is, is what specifically are people who use drugs or former drug users want 
uh, and need, in particular, if you could talk about some of the, some again, like decriminalization, some bold new approaches, whether it's decriminalization, uh, providing people with a safe supply of drugs, that sort of thing. What, what, what's really going to help? What, what, are the, what, do, what do those people really want and need? That's a really tough question. Um, I, well, so, um, first I'll say British Columbia uh, is doing a test decrim for the whole British Columbia where they decrim drugs for, um, out of Canada, that whole district is, uh, is um, decrim right now. So it's available. I don't, I, I don't really hear like what people, like what people that are using drugs want. Um, I think, I know they don't want incarceration, um, I'm, got, I'm pretty sure, but um, I think it's just uh, a little recognition, a little, a little care, just a compassion, just a connection, just like everybody else. I think um, um, yeah, if, we can, if we can just work towards getting rid of that stigma and getting rid of all, this, all the shame and stuff like that, just for simple drug, just for simply self-medicating or whatever and find out what the root causes are, get some solutions, I think that'd be a lot more useful for, a lot more helpful for people, but. And what, what about decriminalization? I mean, I think it's, it's a controversial idea, um, but you know, if, you, if you take away um, you know, possession away from the other, their other crimes, I mean, it does, you know, it, it, it can help people you know, get into treatment and sort of take away that stigma. Right, and, and, right. Yeah. yeah, people can communicate and not feel um, you know, already ostracized or have something against them in a, in a way. They're more likely to make a connection and get help or and talk to the physicians and talk to people um, if, if that becomes necessary. You know, I think one of the big problems we have with decriminalization is that you can't just decriminalize it. You have to do something else, right? And so, because we don't actually do the something else in any significant way, it just feels like we're saying, go for it, do whatever in chaos. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings about what it means to decriminalize drugs. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, as being part of the CERSAC committee, we tried to put together a whole host of services and um, low barrier care, um, no wrong door, increasing um, throughout the state equitable uh, resources and um, treatment centers throughout the state, and um, you know, increasing more, more peer work you know, labeling it so they can get uh, paid through, you know, the, the state Medicaid. And having all those, having all the, the things together to, to create that, that plan, we did a lot of, we did a lot of research. We had all kinds of experts come in. We had every type of person you can imagine on, on at the table. And it's, it's a whole system that has to kind of work together. You can't just decrim and not have any services. You can't just have some services that are, that don't, you know, that aren't going to help people. You can't, you need to have like harm reduction, you need to have safe supply, you need to have everything so if your goal is to reduce deaths and reduce harm, you have to have a whole package, just not um, bits and pieces of it, I think. So. Well, Brad, the, the research shows that safe supply is a way, it's a way to protect people. I mean, that's, you're gonna save lives if you're providing a medically safe alternative. Um, I know it's controversial, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have to be able to provide services for every single person who wants it at any point on the continuum, right? We have to be able to do better in our um, upfront early years of providing prevention services. Again, because we can't just have everybody coming into this 
through line of significant substance use. When people want treatment and resources, we have to do better about making those treatment and resources available on demand in a low barrier way in which people are willing to receive it. You know, one of the things, you know, when you ask Julian about like, what do people who use drugs want? And two thoughts came to my head, which is one is what everybody's different. Right, and there's no like homogeneous person because everybody has their own story. Everyone's been on their own path and everyone's experienced trauma in different ways. But for me, what people who use drugs want is not to die. And so one of the things that we have to get out of our heads is that um, drug use is a moral failure or a choice. Right? When someone is in the throes of their substance use, that drug makes them feel normal and it makes them feel okay. Um, you know, I, take, I, had a, I had a headache the other day and I needed to take ibuprofen because that drug made me feel okay. Magnify that times a thousand, right? And so people who, if people who use drugs, people who use drugs don't want to die from their drug use. Right? And so if that's where they are on their continuum, we have to do a better job of servicing them so they don't die. Whether that's being able to provide naloxone, we have this extremely tainted um, uh, toxic drug supply with fentanyl. Right now, there's, um, we haven't seen a ton of uh, the substance called xylazine coming into our community that's been uh, more on the East Coast, but it causes horrific, horrific, um, uh, abscesses and uh, really bad um, like things that happen in people's body. Like people don't want that. And the more that um, we have uh, uh, different diseases and different um, things that happen to people, it makes it a lot harder to serve people. So we have to do better at each point in the continuum. And if that means that if they're using if they're using drugs, we have to give them you know, like better, better services. We have to help people know what's in their drugs. In Canada, as you said, they're starting a safe, they, I mean, they've been doing safe supply for a long time. So one of the questions from the audience is, what, what can you do if a loved one, um, you know, doesn't want help? If there's, you know, if, if someone really is resistant, I mean, and this is a really hard question, right? Is, you know, and, and I think, you know, when I covered this issue, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, that, that people don't, almost don't have agency, right? And that, so it's a really difficult, um, you know, approach. I mean, what, what what do you think can can help, Julian? I mean, is that um, or or any of you? I, I would ask you. You know, it's 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 a really tough question, isn't it? It is. It's really hard to have a conversation with somebody who's a drug user if you're going with any kind of any kind of you can't you can't start with judgment or shame or and all that. You have to have a real connection, and they have to. I think I think in order to succeed, not necessarily, but I think. A, a good way to start is to have some sort of, um, you know, c connection. You gotta have a connection. You gotta have, and you gotta be able to articulate without judgment the impact that that, that you that you're witnessing that person going through. Um, you know, and I would say that to someone like that, I would say, well, you say they don't want help, but what do you mean, right? Are you mean they don't want help, but they don't want to stop drugs totally? I mean, it, it's hard to believe that you can't find something where you can support them and be there and, as Brad said, help them not die, right? They, they might not be on a path to recovery, but you probably can do something to keep them on a better path to not dying. 
I mean, that's the thing, right? It's not just about, we're not, not everyone has substance use disorder. I mean, some people are taking those drugs and will continue to. And it's, um, I mean, that's the, the issue is like providing all those, you know, right? It's, it's providing not just, um, you know, it's preventing them from, from dying as well as providing treatment if they need it. And also keep in mind, I mean, a lot of people use drugs, but they do it at home, behind closed doors, all that type of stuff. I mean, over half the people that died last year in our community were housed, were sheltered. This isn't just a, a problem of people who are living homeless, right? This is, it's really a multifaceted issue. And there are things that we can do that we don't do as individuals, as community, because uh, as Julian said, it's rooted in stigma, right? Like, I mean, if I know somebody's using drugs, the one thing I do not want them to do is use drugs alone because they can't reverse their own overdose. As hard as it is for me as a loved one to say, it's okay, J just let me know if you start to use because I don't want you to die. So one of the things you can always do is lead with love and kindness to people because as Julian and Darcy said, the more we alienate people, the further people we push people away and the more vulnerable they become. But if we lead with love, that doesn't mean I have to give you my checkbook or my credit card or you know all that type of stuff, but it could mean, you know, hey, I'm always here for you no matter what unconditionally. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions we have here is, how much is the fentanyl crisis a symptom of the overall failures in our nation's healthcare system? That's a big one. That's a big one to answer as the last question. <laughs> well, I think it's a reflection of overall failures at many levels, in yeah. our, right? And um, the um, and I, we were talking earlier. I mean, the fentanyl crisis, to some degree, is a capitalist problem, right? right. It's high. It's m mesmerizing the amount of profit that the drug dealers and the cartels and the high levels of organized crime are making from this. Well, I mean, and the this opioid is, companies themselves, which had a great, well, huge settlement yeah, as well. You know, but Bob Ferguson can't sue a Mexican drug cartel, Correct. right? And you know, the U.S. can't stop the supply chain coming in from China. I mean, it's big. And what we can need to do is, how, what can we do to protect people from becoming addicted in the first place? And if they do, to make sure they don't die until they're ready to do something different. Well, I think we are out of time. Um, thank you so much to Brad, Julian, Darcy uh, for coming. Thank you all for coming. Um, thanks for having us all. Um, and uh, thanks for coming to the festival, everyone. Thank you so much for this. That's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Brad, Darcy, Julian, and Andrew for the talk. This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Seth Halloran and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Anne O'Dowd. Madeline Happold managed our audience engagement. And you can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. We want to know what you think. For the latest political, environmental, and cultural news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. 
I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.